unskilled and unaware of it. Incompetent people lack the skills to improve because they are unable to distinguish between incompetence and competence. This phenomenon of particular interest for metacognition has been named the Dunning-Kruger effect after the psychologists David Dunning and Justin Kruger. Their research showed that incompetent people overestimate their own competence and, failing to sense a mismatch between their performance and what is desirable, see no need to try to improve. The title of their initial paper on the topic was Unskilled and Unaware of It. Dunning and Kruger have also shown that incompetent people can be taught to raise their competence by learning the skills to judge their own performance more accurately. In short, to make their metacognition more accurate. In one series of studies that demonstrate this finding, they gave students a test of logic and asked them to rate their own performance. In the first experiment, the results confirmed expectations that the least competent students were the most out of touch with their performance. Students who scored at the 12th percentile on average <clears throat> believed that their general logical reasoning ability fell at the 68th percentile. In a second experiment, after taking an initial test and rating their own performance, the students were shown the other students' answers and then their own answers and asked to, to re-estimate the number of test questions they had answered correctly. The students whose performance was in the bottom quartile failed to judge their own performance more accurately after seeing the more competent choices of their peers, and in fact tended to raise their already inflated estimates of their own ability. A third experiment explored whether poor performers could learn to improve their judgment. The students were given a Ten problems in logical reasoning, and after the test were asked to rate their logical reasoning skills and test performance. Once again, the students in the bottom quartile grossly overestimated their performance. Next, half the students received ten minutes of training in logic, how to test the accuracy of a syllogism. The other half of the students were given an unrelated task. All the students were then asked to estimate again how well they had performed on the test. Now, the students in the bottom quartile who had received the training were much more accurate estimators of the numbers of questions they got right and how they performed compared to the other students. Those in the bottom quartile who didn't receive the training 
held to their mistaken conviction that they had performed well. How is it that incompetent people fail to learn through experience that they are unskilled? Dunning and Kruger offer several theories. One is that people seldom receive negative feedback about their skills and abilities from others in everyday life because people don't like to deliver the bad news. Even if people get negative feedback, they must come to an accurate understanding of why the failure occurred. For success, everything must go right. But by contrast, failure can be attributed to any number of external causes. It's easy to blame the tool for what the hand cannot do. Finally, Dunning and Kruger suggests that some people are just not astute at reading how other people are performing and are therefore less able to spot competence when they see it, making them less able to make comparative judgments of their own performance. These effects are more likely to occur in some contexts and with some skills than with others. In some domains, the revelation of one's incompetence can be brutally frank. The authors can all remember from their childhoods when a teacher would point with a point two boys to pick the other kids for softball teams. The good players are picked first, the worst last. You learn your peers' judgments of your softball abilities in a very public manner. So it would be hard for the last picked player to think I must be really good at softball. However, most real realms of life do not render such stark judgments of ability. To sum up the means by which we navigate the world, Daniel Kahneman systems one and two rely on our perceptual systems, intuition, memory, and cognition with all their ticks, warts, biases, and flaws. Each of us is an astounding bundle of perceptual and cognitive abilities, coexisting with the seeds of our own undoing. When it comes to learning, what we choose to do is guided by our judgments of what works and what doesn't, and we are easily misled. Our susceptibility to illusion and misjudgment should give us all pause and especially to the advocates of student-directed learning, a theory now current among some parents and educators. This theory holds that students know best what they need to study to master a subject and what pace and methods work best for them. For example, at Manhattan Free School in East Harlem, opened in 2008, students, quote, do not receive grades, take tests, or have to do anything they do not feel like doing. Unquote. The Brooklyn Free School, which opened in 2004 along with a new crop of homeschooling families who call themselves unschoolers, follows the precept that whatever intrigues the learner is what will result in the best learning. The intent is laudatory. We know that students need to take more control of their own learning by employing strategies like those we have discussed. For example, they need to test themselves both 
to attain the direct benefits of increased retention and determine what they know and don't know to more accurately judge their progress and focus on material that needs more work. But few students practice these strategies and those who do will need more than encouragement to if they are to practice them effectively. It turns out that even when students understand that retrieval practice is a superior strategy, they often fail to persist long enough to get the lasting benefit. For example, when students are presented with a body of material to master, say a stack of foreign vocabulary flashcards, and are free to decide when to drop a card out of the deck because they've learned it. Most students drop the card when they've gotten it right at once or twice, far sooner than they should. The paradox is that those students who employ the least effective study strategies overestimate their learning the most and, as a consequence of their misplaced confidence, they're not inclined to change their habits. The student football, the football player preparing for next Saturday's game doesn't leave his performance to intuition. He runs through his plays and makes it up to discover the rough edges and work them out in the field well, well before suiting up for the game. If this kind of behavior were anywhere else in the norm of students in their academics today, then self-directed learning would be the highly effective. But of course, the football player is not self-directed. His academics better under an instructor who knows where improvement is needed and structures the practice required to achieve it, unquote. The answer to illusion and misjudgment is to replace subjective experience as the basis for decision. Likewise, most students will learn academics better under an instructor who knows where improvement is needed and structures for practice required to achieve it. The answer to illusion and misjudgment is to replace subjective experience as a basis for decisions with a set of objective gauges outside ourselves so that our judgment squares with the real world around us. When we have reliable reference points like cockpit instruments and make a habit of checking them, we can make good decisions about where at, where to focus our efforts, recognize that we do not, recognize that we've lost our bearings and find our way back again. Here are some examples. Tools and Habits for Calibrating Your Judgment Most important is to make 
frequent use of testing and retrieval practice to verify what you really do know versus what you think you know. Frequent low-stakes quizzes in class help the instructor verify that students are in fact learning as well as they appear to be and reveal the areas where extra attention is needed. Doing cumulative quizzing as Andy Sobol does in his political economics course is especially powerful for consolidating learning and knitting the concepts from one stage of a course into new material encountered later. As a learner, you can use any number of practice techniques to self-test your mastery, from answering flashcards to explaining key concepts in your own words and to peer instruction. See below. Don't make the mistake of dropping material from your testing regime once you've gotten it correct a couple of times. If it's important, it needs to be practiced and practiced again. And don't put stock in momentary gains that result from massed practice. Space your testing. Vary your practice. Keep the long view. Peer instruction. A learning model developed by Eric Mazur incorporates many of the foregoing principles. The material will be covered in class as is assigned for reading beforehand. In class, the lecture is interspersed with quick tests that present students with a conceptual question and give them a minute or two to grapple with it. They then try in small groups to teach, rather reach a consensus on the correct answer. In Mazur's experience, his, this process engages the students in the underlying concepts of the lecture material, reveals students' problems in reaching understanding, and provides opportunities for them to explain their understanding, receive feedback, and assess their learning compared to other students. Likewise, the process serves as a gauge for the instructor of how well the students are assimilating the material and in what areas more or less work is needed. Mazur tries to pair students who initially had different answers to a question so that they can see another point of view and try to convince one another of who is right. For two more examples of this technique, See the profiles of the professor Mary Watt Wanderoth and Michael D. Matthews in Chapter 8. Pay attention to the cues you're using to judge what you have learned. Whether something feels familiar or fluent is not always a reliable indicator of learning. Neither is your level of ease in retrieving a fact or a phrase on a quiz shortly after encountering it in a lecture or text. Ease of retrieval after a delay, however, is a good indicator of learning. Far better is to create a mental model of the material that integrates the various ideas across a text, connects them to what you already know, and enables you to draw inferences. How 
ably you can explain a text is an excellent cue for judging comprehension. Because you must recall the salient points from memory, put them into your own words and explain why they are significant, how they relate to the larger subject. Instructors should give corrective feedback and learner and learners should seek it. In his interview with Errol Morris, the psychologist David Dunning argues that the path to self-insight leads through other people. Quote, so it really depends on what sort of feedback you're getting. In the, in the world telling you good things, is the world telling you good things? Is the world rewarding you in a way that you would expect a competent person to be rewarded? If you watch other people, you often find there are different ways to do things. There are better ways to do things. I'm not as good as I thought I was, but I have something to work on. Unquote. Think of the kids lining up to join the softball team. Would you be picked? In many fields, the practice of peer review serves as an external gauge, providing feedback on one's performance. Most medical practice groups have morbidity, mortality conferences, and if a doctor has a bad patient outcome, it will be presented there. The other doctors will pick it apart or say, you did a good job. It was just a bad situation. Mike Ebersold argues that people in his field should practice as a part of a group Quote, if there are other neurosurgeons around you, it's a safeguard. If you're doing something that's not acceptable, they'll call you to ask to task for it. In many settings, your judgment and learning are calibrated by working alongside a more experienced partner, airline first officers with captains, rookies with seasoned cops, residents with experienced surgeons, the apprentice model is a very old one in human experience, as novices, whether cobblers or attorneys, have traditionally learned their craft from experienced practitioners. In other settings, teams are formed of people with complementary areas of expertise. When doctors implant, implant medical devices like pacemakers and neural stimulators of the type that treat incontinence or the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. The manufacturer has a product representative right in the operating room with the surgeon. The rep has seen many surgeries using the device, knows the kinds of patients that will benefit from it, knows the contraindications and adverse effect events, and has a hotline to the engineers and clinicians on the company's staff. The rep tracks the surgery to make sure the device is implanted in the correct position, the leads are inserted in the correct depth, and so on. Every part of the team benefits. The patient is assured of an appropriate and successful surgery. The doctor gets product and troubleshooting expertise at her fingertips and the company makes sure its products are used correctly.